Welcome to the Modern Intimacy Podcast, a show about mental health, sex, relationships, education, how-tos, and those private things we need to talk about more publicly with no restrictions. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Balistrieri. As a licensed psychologist, certified sex therapist, and certified sex addiction therapist, I know that mental health is directly tied to the quality of our relationships and our sex lives. I am passionate in my desire to smash stigmas about both and shine a light on relationship and societal issues that may be negatively affecting us. During this podcast, I will also give you practical answers and insights to questions you're asking about or have been hoping to solve. We should all have fulfilled, happy lives, erasing shame and stigmas and building healthy connections. Let's do that by getting curious together. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Modern Intimacy Podcast. I am really excited today to invite a special guest whose work I've been following on Instagram for quite a while, Dr. Stephen Niffley. Stephen is an Afrocentric and clinical psychologist, a scholar, a racial trauma expert, a diversity consultant, and professor at Spalding University. And I'm so excited to have him here with me today to talk about racial trauma, intergenerational trauma, and the effects that that can have on folks' romantic and intimate lives as adults. So, Stephen, thank you so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely happy to be here. Yeah. Can you you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and sort of what your perspective is as a psychologist? And that can maybe start off our conversation. Sure, absolutely. I am uh, an associate professor at Spalding University in the School of Professional Psychology and also uh, lead our diversity, equity, inclusion efforts as our chief diversity officer. Um, I appreciate having those two positions because it allows me to uh, merge my passion for psychology and providing spaces of healing uh, with also my passion for social justice and dismantling systems that have impacted folks, you know, from sexism mm-hmm. to heterosexism to racism, uh, other forms of discri- discrimination as well. All the isms. All yes. the isms. <laughs> There's a bunch. There are a bunch. There are too many. One is too many. So let's talk a little bit about racial trauma. And people may have may be familiar with that term. It may be something that's new for them. So how would you define that? And how would you identify it in someone's life? That's such a, a great question. Uh, I'm glad we were able to have this conversation around this idea of racial trauma. Uh, so what we're aware of is that racial trauma is this uh, intersection between the traditional trauma that many folks experience based on uh, physical trauma, intimate partner violence trauma, etc., and this experience of, of systemic trauma. So it's the combination of systems level trauma with interpersonal trauma. And where those uh, where they kind of meet at is in this area of three things. Uh, this experience of aversive hostile racism, this experience of uh, micro-invalidations, and this experience of vicarious racism. And so what ends up happening is that when someone experiences an interpersonal kind of microaggression of sorts, so uh, they are able to gain interest into a bunch of privileged spaces, and then they're met with significant uh, hostility that's designed to remind them that they deserve to be in this space. This is what is known as adverse of hostile racism. 
And so then after that, you have what is known as micro validations. And so you try to communicate those experiences to those folks around you. And they tell you that it's not important. It's not a big deal. You're making things up. It's just not, you know, something you should really be worrying about. And that's what micro validations are. So you try to tell folks that you're experiencing racism and discrimination based on gaining interest in the privileged spaces. They tell you it's not a big deal. And as you're trying to navigate some of those interpersonal and systemic challenges, you still have to witness the violence and discrimination that's happening towards Black and brown folks across the world as well. And so that's where that vicarious racism comes into effect. So racial trauma is this kind of intersection between systemic related issues, interpersonal related issues, where they meet at this place of racism that it impacts us in the areas of aversive hostile racism, micro-invalidations, and vicarious racism. Wow, I really appreciate you breaking that down in that way. It, it makes it so much more clear to understand that it's kind of inescapable, is what I'm hearing, for folks who are non-white. Unfortunately, as long as uh, we are able to differentiate folks based on something, mm-hmm. <laughs> race will always be a part of that. Uh, there's a sociologist named uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva uh, that talks a lot about this idea of how we will just essentially morph into a new version uh, of racism. Uh, many folks who uh, are not happy with this idea of critical race theory, <clears throat> if you actually read it, you know, uh, what Derrick Bell is talking about is about his belief uh, that racism will never go away, that it will always mm-hmm. just kind of morph and change. And so if racial trauma is always going to be a part of our experience, that we have to find ways to both support folks and then try to find ways to dismantle and reduce its impact as best as we can. Mm-hmm. What are some of the long-term effects psychologically that you see in folks as a result of racial trauma? Sure. And so sometimes uh, we kind of uh, think that Traditional trauma uh, and racial trauma have some sort of overlap, Mm -hmm. and they do have some places where there are some similarities, but there's actually been quite a few studies that have came out in the last couple of years that have allowed us to look at a constellation of symptoms that really highlight uh, some of the differences. And so those constellation of symptoms are depression, um, intrusive thinking, challenges with anger and aggression and um, anxiety. And so if we see a constellation of symptoms in the area and folks are able to connect it back to some experience of racism or discrimination, that allows us to differentiate it from PTSD. What we're also aware of is that when it comes to how PTSD is different from racial trauma, it's the subtle experience of racial discrimination and the impact that it has when it comes to emotional pain. So I don't necessarily have to feel like I'm physically attacked or threatened in any sort of way or like I'm going to die in some sorts, which is oftentimes connected with traditional PTSD. But the science is saying that that experience of that emotional pain can actually have more of a harm than that physical pain that that folks might encounter because of PTSD. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, when when I think about the ways in which the emotional pain you're describing and um, the experience of being in connection with other people or isolation, in addition to how we construct our own identity, it seems like it would be sort of this 
never ending source of discomfort, you know, at the best case scenario that really permeates so many different aspects of intrapsychic um, and, and interpersonal dynamics. But the good thing about any sort of challenge is that there is always hope. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, cha- the challenge with race is that <clears throat> the construct of race is, is a, a fictitious one. I think uh, Kimberly Crenshaw uh, talks a lot about that, about this ideal that we all got together and just decided that white is this, black is this, Asian, et cetera, is this. And then started connecting stereotypes to it. Uh, as well that have led to both challenges and opportunities for different racial backgrounds. I mean, if we think about even during slavery times with challenges related to the one drop rule, where someone could literally change their race based on transitioning from one state to another, that highlights the ways in which race in a lot of ways is a, is a, a made of construct. And so where the human can happen and where we can dismantle those systems is by recognizing that we've all been placed in an imaginary box Mm -hmm. that we always have the ability to step out of. And if we're able to step out of that box, um, the challenges related to racism and discrimination can impact us much less. Yeah. Yeah. In in your, thank you for that. And in, in your work and in your research, I'm really curious about how you see the effects of racial trauma um, compounding intergenerationally and whether sort of intergenerational trauma or firsthand experience of racial trauma plays a larger role in distress, if that can even Absolutely. be parsed great. out. Uh, great, great question. Great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, <clears throat> so if we imagine uh, looking specifically here at the uh, socio-historical experience of Black individuals uh, connected to chattel slavery, uh, we could think about our initial ancestors over here. And for many of them, they witnessed all the atrocities connected uh, to to racism and discrimination in in that particular format. And so the greatest skill that we have learned is what is known as compartmentalization. And that's our ability to take something bad that has happened to us and to put it to the side and say, you know, we'll deal with that at a later time. We learned that skill from our earliest ancestors here. Uh, that were impacted by the experience of slavery. They would see something really bad happen to folks or experience something bad that happened to themselves. They would say, I can't deal with that right now because I have to be here for my family. I have to keep myself alive, things along those lines. And so they would put those challenges away in boxes with the intent of dealing with them at a later time. However, what would end up happening is that they never got back around to it because just one after another, bad things would keep happening. You know, uh, enslavement, um, <clears throat> being sold from their families, being separated from their families, being experimented on by different types of folks, just a lot of bad things happening to people. Yeah. And so what would happen is that that next generation would then receive those boxes of trauma. Then having learned that compartmentalization is our most effective way to deal with trauma, would then also tuck their experiences with trauma in boxes as well. But because our group, our folks have never had a space to sit and process all the bad things that have happened to them. All we've been doing is passing down those boxes of trauma to the folks that are coming behind us. And so if we think about the current generation, and we think about what it looks like to have to navigate all of those experiences of, of those boxes, you know, if I'm holding a bunch of boxes, I can't see in front of me. I can only see the trauma that's around me. 
trauma is really heavy, so I can't really move any sort of where anywhere. And if I ever set those boxes down, similar to many of the boxes that are still sitting in my house, uh, even though I've been in it for a couple of years, it's just too much to deal with. And so I just never unpack those boxes. And so that's what's happening with a lot of our folks is they can't see themselves for the wonderful BIPOC individuals that they are because they can only see the trauma that's been passed down to them from the ancestors and from all the challenges that their ancestors experienced. They feel like they have learned helplessness and hopelessness and can't move <clears throat> because they feel weighed down by the trauma. And they also have no space to really process those experiences because it's too overwhelming to think about generation upon generations of trauma that the ancestors encountered as well. And so that's kind of where a lot of our folks are now, especially uh, our young people, our youth. Mm -hmm. Do you see any differences in how folks navigate that trauma or don't based on gender or any other identities? Sure. Intersectionality absolutely plays a significant role. <clears throat> if we think about two concepts here, uh, if we talk about the long-suffering Black woman, as well as John Henryism, these are two examples of ways in which Black folks specifically have been taught to manage that trauma. So long-suffering Black woman is all about, uh, it's an archetype, archetype uh, connected to the experience of Black women where they are expected to put their experience to the side and always be the most consistent part of the family unit, uh, <clears throat> which means then that there's never a space for them to process trauma, to experience any sort of emotion, to have any sort of like cathartic experience related to any sort of sadness, anxiety, et cetera. If we think about John Henryism, <clears throat> there are two points of high depth deaths for Black men uh, between the ages of 18 and 24, and then in the mid-50s. And those are connected, the first one is connected to physical violence, accidents, and suicides. But that group in the 50s is connected to uh, the experience of preventable illnesses that are connected to this idea of stress. <clears throat> and so if we think about the folktale John Henry, John Henry was a Black man who uh, was trying to race against the machine to see who could dig a tunnel faster. He was able to achieve that, but um, in response to that, like he died. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's happened with many Black men is that the way in which we've been taught to navigate the experience of, uh, of racism and discrimination is to put our heads down, keep on digging until our bodies give out. Black women, on the other hand, have been taught that when it comes to our the experience of racism and discrimination for that particular group, that we uh, or they should... Uh, tuck it to the side and realize that they're here for their families and, for, and to put their own experiences to the side. Uh, there's a similar con uh, construct for uh, Latinx individuals as well. I believe it's called Marianismo. I believe it's rooted in the experience of the Virgin Mary. When we think about the Virgin Mary, that was someone that was also long suffering, also giving of themselves, kind of like a similar concept. Mm -hmm. You also think about machismo in the same way, right? You know, you, you're supposed to be the man in your house. You're supposed to not show emotion, kind of all those type of things. And so those are all kind of examples of that intersectional piece. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when we think about uh, for members of the LGBT community, uh, there's that double oppression 
uh, those folks encounter. Uh, so I believe one of the quotes that was shared with me by one of my uh, friends that's a part of that community was that you just never really fit in anywhere. So you are too black for the gay community, <laughs> but you're too gay for the black community, which means then that you're experiencing this challenge with racism and discrimination, but you're also experiencing uh, ostracization from the community that can also lift you up as well. So when I hear you describe that, I, I really hear just so much tremendous isolation and added risks for all kinds of mental health concerns um, because of that isolation. And I wonder when you think about folks sort of making sense of what lies ahead in their own healing, what are some of the biggest questions that people have or opportunities that they have? So we have uh, three really amazing opportunities uh, to be a part of our own healing and growth. Mm -hmm. um, I'll take a lot or draw a lot from Afrocentric psychology, as well as liberation psychology. And both of those highlight this idea that first we should be taking it's uh, not you, it's a them perspective when it comes to our, our connection to systems of oppression. We should also be taking an activist mindset in whatever way that looks like for us and engaging with uh, challenges that have happened to us. We should be seeking to connect to others. And we should also be thinking about this idea of self-knowledge uh, and this interconnected energy that binds us all together. So if you combine all those concepts within the sphere of Afrocentric psychology and liberation psychology, what we're essentially referring to are three different areas in which we could be a part of our own healing process. We can support the development of our racial identity. We could provide spaces to process all those boxes of trauma that have happened to us in a supportive space. And we can learn how to develop the skills that are needed to support ourselves and advocate for others who have encountered experiences related to racism and discrimination. For many of us, those have not been opportunities that we've had. <clears throat> Instead, we've been given a prepackaged version of Blackness, a prepackaged version of what it means to be a Latinx individual, a prepackaged version for what it means to be an Indigenous person or an Asian individual, <clears throat> and have been told that that's the only box in which we can exist in. However, if we truly believe then that those boxes are imaginary and that we have the ability to step out of those, imagine the power that we have to be able to define our blackness, our brownness for ourselves. For many of us, we have not been able to be in spaces in which we are able to safely and bravely embrace the trauma that has happened to us and to our ancestors. Imagine if we're able to sit down and unpack those boxes and engage in intergenerational healing. Imagine if one day we're able to say, those boxes stop with me and we'll be passed down no further. I mean, you know, imagine just like how powerful that is and what a leg up that gives to our youth to be in a different space. Mm -hmm. Also, just think about how recognizing that racism will unfortunately be a part of our experience for many years to come. If we're able to equip folks with the skills and tools that they are needed in order to authentically advocate for themselves uh, and advocate for others who have been impacted by racism and discrimination. Like those are some really meaningful challenges, meaningful opportunities uh, that folks can uh, kind of get into to adjust the challenges faced by uh, BIPOC individuals. What are your thoughts on sort of how how parents and children within the BIPOC communities can 
have conversations about healing, especially when there are often generational differences um, that can take shape and make sometimes conversations between any parent and child a bit more challenging. Um, but what are some of the things that you've seen go well when um, when adult children and parents are having those conversations? And where do they struggle? Sure. So the, the two places that are helpful for us to think about is first making sure that the parent is engaging in their own work. <clears throat> And then also engaging in a meaningful racial socialization process. So for many of us, if we have not did our own work when it comes to developing our racial identity, when it comes to uh, finding our own ways to dismantle systems of racism, and then also find ways to advocate for ourselves and others, we're not going to be able to pass down a legacy of healing to our, our kids. I mean, you know, there's a reason why on airplanes they tell you to put your mask on first mm -hmm. and then put the, the mask on for even your child <clears throat> because we have to be able to put ourselves in a position in which we could be most helpful uh, to the folks that we care about. And so we got to engage in our own healing before we can support the healing of others. So that's the first thing. The second thing we got to think about is the idea of racial socialization. You know, unlike perhaps other groups of folks, uh, racial socialization is an integral part of the black and brown parenting experience. One of our main jobs is to equip our youth uh, with a positive racial identity, with the space to learn how to process challenges related to discrimination and racism, and to prepare them for the world that is going to happen to them, uh, whether or not they like it or not. <clears throat> and there's two areas in which we try to do that. One is through this idea called racial legacy messaging, racial legacy messaging. And essentially what this refers to are these series of messages that we pass down to our youth that kind of warn them that challenging things are going to happen to them. Uh, like I remember my grandma telling me all the time, you know, baby, you're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as much as other people in this world. Right. And so like those are the messages that we receive. Those messages are awesome. But the challenge with those messages is that they don't tell us exactly what to do when we actually encounter those experiences with racism and discrimination. Instead, it just says that racism is going to happen. And then when it does, you're not surprised, but you don't know what to do about it. Another way in which we could engage in the racial socialization process with our youth is through what are known as racial literacy skills. Racial literacy skills refers to three uh, different types of, well, three steps that we can use to address a potentially racist situation. We can first identify it as racist, you know, and figure out kind of what that means for us. We can identify where our coping strategies are in order to deal with whatever that racist situation is. And then we can effectively evaluate whether or not we were able to manage that situation in a way that is authentic to who we are as a black and brown person. And so when we think about the uh, ways in which we can uh, <clears throat> support our youth as parents, we can make sure that we're engaging in our own healing, you know, because uh, passing down of intergenerational trauma is real. There's a lot of research mm -hmm. to support it. We pass it down biologically. We pass it down psychologically. We pass it down interpersonally. We pass it down emotionally. <clears throat> and unless we're doing our process and engaging our own healing, we'll pass it down to our youth as well. We don't want that to happen. We then also have to think about what skills are we teaching our kids via this process of racial socialization. 
So we equipping our kids with a positive racial identity that affirms who they are and makes them feel proud for being a black and brown person. And then are we teaching them skills via interventions such as racial literacy that help them to identify racism, identify their abilities to cope, and to evaluate whether or not they engage in an effective process for them. Thank you for that. I, I just really appreciate the different dimensions of everything that you are speaking to. And I imagine that for people listening, it can be really uh, helpful, maybe even a little overwhelming. And for folks who maybe feel like they don't know where to start, how to start doing their own healing, what would you recommend? Uh, so if you take an Afrocentric psychology perspective, um, what Afrocentric psychology says is that we already have the ability to heal from within. So if we think about it from that perspective, you already have within you all the tools that you need in order to engage in your own healing process. There's a reason why African-Americans, Latinx folks, Asian individuals, et cetera, indigenous folks have been able to survive colonialism, genocide, slavery, all the things that have happened to black and brown folks. It's because there's a resiliency that exists in our DNA uh, <clears throat> that allow, has allowed us to you know, circumvent all the challenges that have happened to us. And so that's been passed down to you already have all the tools that you need. Sometimes what we need, though, is someone to teach us how to use those tools. And so that could be engaging in therapy uh, with a racial trauma trained therapist. That could be engaging in your own kind of like self-reflection process by engaging in some readings that affirm who you are as a racialized individual. That's also just being intentional and aware of the messaging that you allow to be received into your body and into your mind. So whenever you're seeing negative images of black and brown folks, is that something that you're celebrating or is that something that you're trying to combat against? When you see folks offer disparaging comments out in your community against black and brown folks, do you feel like you have the skills and tools that are needed to advocate for yourself and others in that space? <clears throat> and so I get that. Trust me, I've been there too. We support folks all the time that are struggling with this idea of feeling overwhelmed. But it's really important for folks to remember that you have everything that you need on the inside, right? There's a reason why you're still here. There's a reason why your ancestors were able to make it through all the challenges that they have. But if you need help utilizing those tools, learning how to engage those tools, folks like myself, other folks trained in racial trauma therapy are here to help. If that's not a place that you're in, you know, engaging your own self-reflection process that is intentional, that's rooted in affirmation, advocacy, and awareness, all ways in which you can engage that process and not feel so overwhelmed by it. Thank you. In your experience and, and research, uh, what are you seeing um, in terms of how racial trauma can impact intimate relationships? And obviously, no one group is monolithic. So I'm, I know there's a tremendous amount of diversity in how we all process different kinds of trauma. But I wonder if there's data um, about racial trauma specifically and how it can influence adult intimate relationships or attachment? Sure. So there are, are three areas for us to think about here. The first one is navigating gender roles. Mm -hmm. The second is our communication styles. And then the third is our ability to emotionally regulate. <clears throat> and all of those are extremely important when it comes to our um, 
the ways in which we navigate um, our relationships and potential challenges within our relationships. And so if we think about that first one, which is navigating gender roles, <clears throat> if I'm thinking specifically about Black males here, we've been taught over and over and over again, based on the rule book of white patriarchy, <clears throat> that there we are supposed to adhere to a traditional masculine ideology, which means that we are supposed to be not emotional, we're supposed to be not good uh, socially, we're supposed to not communicate well, we're supposed to be hypersexual, and we're supposed to be these very aggressive individuals. <clears throat> and so then when we're in these intimate relationships with folks that are trying to pull for something different from that, you know, like that causes a strain. Uh, there's research by uh, Pleck and colleagues that talks about this idea of experiencing gender role strain when our culture is telling us one thing about how we're supposed to engage as, as men, as masculine individuals, but then uh, we're experiencing something different uh, based on societal expectations that have been imposed upon us. <clears throat> and so at the same time that we are being told that we should be one way, we're perhaps experiencing mixed messages from within our culture about the ways in which we're supposed to be in the world. And so having to navigate those gender roles is a challenge for us and, and just a challenge in general and in, in intimate relationships. The next piece here is around communication. If we've all learned uh, as, as Black men, as Black women, et cetera, as Latinx uh, folks that we're either A, supposed to put our heads down in the midst of significant challenges and just keep on digging, or we're supposed to be silent and not speak to what our pain is, then we're going to create this space that if we ever actually have conflict in our communication styles, one person is going to keep digging away and one person is going to sit in silence. And that causes a challenge in our intimate relationships with one another. And the last piece here is around emotion regulation. <clears throat> so one of the challenges that we see oftentimes with folks that have experienced trauma is what is known as alexithymia. Mm -hmm. Alexithymia, and essentially what alexithymia refers to is when we literally lose the ability to communicate our emotional experience to those folks around us. <clears throat> and so part of being in an intimate relationship is your ability to connect emotionally and your ability to communicate those emotion, your emotional needs to the person or to your partner there. But if I don't have the words to communicate that experience, then I'm not going to be able to do that. And if you need something from me, either in terms of the emotional connection or emotional words, I'm not going to be able to provide that to you. What do you recommend for couples, you know, as, as they're navigating um, the, the way in which racial trauma may impact their intimate lives and maybe being at different, uh, different cadences and different um access points in their own healing or sense-making or communication about their experience? A big part of this is, is location. So we have to uh, know where we both are in terms of our journey uh, and then uh, be aware of the, because uh, one of the, of the most important things that I, I think I've, uh, you know, supported couples around and have even thought about myself is uh, this expectation of always giving a hundred percent and, and, you know, no couple is designed like that. Uh, sure, things might add up to 100%, but no one is able to give a full 100% at any given time, um, right? So someone may only be able to give 40, 
Another person may be only, is only able to give 60. But the ways in which you communicate that and navigate that all I got right now is 40 is extremely important to the, the process there. So I think we have to know where we are at but, uh, from a social location standpoint when it comes to racial identity, be in different spaces when it comes to how we feel about our blackness and brownness uh, compared to our partner or, or, or partners. <clears throat> Another thing to think about is uh, making sure that we have a good and meaningful communication style, and that if our, and we're thinking about you know how can I you know introduce some language or how can I support that person to get in the support that they need to learn how to communicate in a more meaningful way. So it's locating where we are in terms of our racial identity. It's having that meaningful kind of communication style in place, and then it's also just learning how to uh, think about the different ways in which we've all been influenced to think about various gender roles, uh, even folks that are existing outside of those gender roles. How are we thinking about how we've all been influenced to think a certain way about what it means to be male, female, or to exist outside of those spaces? It's so key. What I'm really hearing you say is that a part of what can be challenging um, for anyone healing is, is identifying where their starting point is and deciding where they want to go and what they need along the way. And then being able to communicate that to the people around them, whether it's an intimate partner, friend, people out in their communities. Um, because a part of healing sometimes is taking a leap of faith and not knowing what you don't know about how you've been impacted. And so inherently in that in that space of exploration and growing, there can be um, a lot of misattunements because folks are still building that vocabulary about their own experience before they're even able to share it with another person. 60, 40, 70, 30, whatever that kind of looks like for folks, that's why that's so important. <clears throat> if I know in the beginning, if I know through communication, that I have strength in this area, but I'm weak in this area, then I'm less likely to give you a hard time in your area of weakness mm. because I see that you're working on it and we're moving in a different direction with it. If we're not communicating on that and I don't know that that's a challenge for you, I'm just going to assume that that's a, a direct affront to me or an attack on me or something that you don't care about in terms of how my of what my experience is. Um, we can't all be strong in everything. <clears throat> and so what we can think about is how we can communicate our weaknesses more meaningful and to make sure that those weaknesses aren't causing harm for the folks around us. Yeah, that's so important. I think even, even sometimes knowing that can be such a challenge, but I think being open to feedback from partners, being open to self-reflection and self-exploration is a really important step in understanding where can I advocate for myself and also how can I best protect other people from what might feel like rage or lo feeling lost or being confused or um, simply, and I don't mean simply to be reductionistic here, but uh, like simply kind of not knowing which way to go in, in whatever the conversation might be that you're having. Um, it can bring up such real feelings of helplessness and frustration when we feel vulnerable in those moments. And I imagine that can compound any other vulnerabilities that exist from racial trauma. Absolutely. And, you know, we use this as like a, a, a more advanced therapeutic skill. 
So it's not fair to kind of like impose this on other folks, mm -hmm. but this idea of, ex of externalizing our dialogue mm -hmm. is so important <laughs> to where folks are able to, uh, to hear from you. This is the tension that I'm experiencing. Like, look, I, I really want to, uh, to be here in this way for you, but this is the challenge that I'm having there. I mean, there's something really powerful about folks being able to hear what your thought process is. Now, granted, folks go to school for a bit to like learn how to do that, but through meaningful therapy, meaningful self-reflection, awareness, like that's such an important skill for folks to have within couples as well, because if you're not communicating your experience, <clears throat> then you leave it up to the other person or persons to make some assumptions. Um, and usually those assumptions are in the negative because that's kind of how our brains are wired is to think about danger first. Yeah. And so I'm going to think about what are you doing? Uh, this must be negative. You must be trying to do something negative rather than you saying, I don't know what to do here. I'm scared. I'm frustrated. I'm anxious about this. I want to do this right, but I just don't know how to. You know, that has like a much different feel to it. It really does. You know, when when we have the capacity to hold space and, and be accountable for our own emotional experience, I think that can be a great de-escalating strategy in relationships because it's really easy to point the finger at a partner and say, you made me feel this way or you're doing this to me. When in reality, you know, most of the time, unless there's some sort of toxic dynamic or a malicious intent, uh, partners are sort of bumbling around each other and doing their very best. And it can still evoke lots of hurt and disappointment and wounding um, in the moment or related to old familial trauma or intergenerational traumas. And when you're meeting someone on the dance floor for the first time that you don't know, you don't know if if they like to be more in the lead, if they would prefer if you're more in the lead, if they like a certain type of pacing or things along those lines. And those are things that you find out over time and through like a feedback loop to where you mm -hmm. say, oh, that person didn't like that because they communicated that in a way and I can adjust in a more meaningful way for them. <clears throat> but you have to give yourself time to learn how to do the dance uh, rather than expecting your partner to come out, come out kind of knowing what, what your needs and expectations are. Second to last question for you. Uh, I never expect people from the BIPOC community to educate white people on how to be better allies. That is our work to do. And my invitation to anyone who's not a member of a marginalized group is to really take on that task of educating yourself and looking at uh, your own blind spots, because we all have them and we have tremendous privileges, whatever uh, majority group you might hold membership in or identities in. And at the same time, people in the oppressive or the majority groups can never know themselves as well as the people in other groups. And so I'm curious if you have any insights that you would like to offer to any white allies listening who really want to be better at understanding the experience of others and challenging their own echo chambers. Uh, so there are three things that folks can do in those spaces. <clears throat> they can seek out education, seek out immersive experiences and find ways to have meaningful conversation with those folks in which they hold similarly privileged spaces. And so if we think about this idea of education, education is rooted around finding first person narratives or first person opportunities to engage with folks that are different from yourself. <laughs> of course, always being first asking the question uh, around um, 
you know, would it be okay if I talk with you? And being okay if that person is not in the space to give the emotional labor to have that dialogue. Oftentimes what I've seen is that we are uh, going to secondhand resources. So we're reading books written by white individuals about the BIPOC experience, rather than going to BIPOC individuals themselves and consuming their literature and the media and what they're describing their experience. It's really important for us to do that and making sure that we're engaging in a wide range of exposure there. Sometimes people stop at uh, the suffering that has happened to black and brown folks and then just leave it at that and say, I've read everything as I know about enslavement, about genocide, about internment camps, kind of all those type of things and assume mm-hmm. that they understand black and brown experience. But black and brown folks existed way before all those challenges happened and have existed successfully since those challenges have occurred uh, as well. And so it's important for us to gain those narratives and to hear those first person accounts of all the ways in which black and brown folks have been resilient, successful, and, and all the things that come along with that. So education is really important. The next piece is around immersion. So although we are less segregated now in terms of our proximity to one another than we've been in the past, we still have not developed relationships with one another. Until we are in a space where folks have developed relationships, uh, we'll continue to be in the space of seeing one another as the perpetual other. There was a study that was done by Stanford uh, where they found that 93% why individuals don't have black friends. And what they did is they looked at three specific criteria here. The first one is, do you know the person's government name? The second one was, have you ever engaged with this person outside of school or work setting? And the third one was, has anyone ever had a conversation with you around racism or discrimination that they've experienced? And what they found is that many folks were able to first answer the first question, but even fewer folks were able to answer the second question, and even much more few folks were able to answer the third question. And the reason why that happens is because we haven't developed relationships with one another. <clears throat> the person that's at your job that you say hi to every day at work and you say bye to every day at work is, is not a relationship that you develop with someone. It's the person that you know that you've been to their house that you've seen how they live, that you've seen their, you know, like it's just kind of like developing some of those relational pieces. And so it's really important that we immerse ourselves. Recognizing that immersion also doesn't mean uh, folks that we are helping uh, because the social contact hypothesis is pretty clear in saying that no meaningful relationship is developed when it's only a top-down experience. And so if we're constantly in the helping role, we're not developing a relationship as more of a partnership or an associate kind of type of space. So we have to educate ourselves from a first person perspective. We have to engage in immersive experiences where we build relationships with one another. Not everybody though is going to have access to these opportunities. And so there are some folks within our circles in which we have to go back to and we have to offer a perspective based on what we've learned, based on what we've experienced in our relationships. And that's where that conversation is really important. Who are you talking to or who are other folks talking to uh, that needs to hear the information that you've gathered through your experiences that they perhaps have not been able to gather themselves? What perspective can you offer that may challenge stereotypes or may reduce the impact of microaggressions or discrimination simply because you've received exposure that vicariously you can pass down to someone else within your privileged spaces as well? 
And so folks are thinking about how to be good allies, advocates, and accomplices, uh, seek out immersive experiences, and share those through conversation with those folks in which we share, share the similarly similar privileged. Wonderful. Thank you. And are there any specific resources that you might recommend for folks who are looking to heal from racial trauma um, or looking to be better allies and advocates? Uh, my grandmother's hands uh, is a, a great resource uh, from, a, from a historical standpoint. The 1619 Project is a good resource. Uh, the Capitalism of Slavery is a good resource. Slavery by Another Name by Black Men is a good resource. Uh, <clears throat> White Fragility, of course, is a good resource as well as White Rage. Uh, there's another one about educating uh, uh, privileged people uh, by good men uh, is also a good resource as well. Uh, so just a lot of really good books that are out there and what folks have thought very hard about how to support uh, uh, black and brown folks as well as white individuals that are trying to, to do the good work. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. I really appreciate your time here today. And where can folks find you if they want to follow your work or be in touch with you? Uh, so you can uh, follow me on Instagram at Dr. Stephen Niffley Jr. Um, and then also my website is Dr. Stephen Niffley Jr., all one word, dot com. Um, happy to engage with folks in those spaces. If you're also interested in learning more about our racial trauma therapy approaches and live in Kentucky, Indiana, or Ohio, uh, we'd be happy to support you at no cost at our collective care center or racial trauma clinic. Uh, the number there is 502-792-7018. And we'd be happy and excited to support you. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate your time today. And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the Modern Intimacy Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Modern Intimacy Podcast. On Instagram, follow me at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and at The Modern Intimacy. On TikTok, check me out at Dr. Kate Balistrieri and on Twitter at Kate Balistrieri. Everyone has questions about mental health, sex, and relationships. Send yours to me via DM on Instagram or email them to questions at modernintimacy.com and I'll answer some at the end of each episode. Visit the website modernintimacy.com to schedule a consultation with a member of our team or to sign up for our newsletter. Let's meet back here next week. New episodes air every Tuesday. Reminder, this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for mental health services. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.